My cousin just calls me. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm drinking coffee. She goes, I never got into that. I said, never got into what? She goes, I drink coffee. I said, what do you do? She goes, nothing. I said, tea, something like that. She goes, no, I just get up. You just get up. You just get up. What's wrong? What's happening? How do you do that? I've been drinking coffee since the fourth grade. I've been dunking coffee in Bishkorts. That's how I got started in the fourth grade. My mother used to give me a cup of coffee with a Bishkort and I used to dip it. That's how this coffee trend started. All right. Now here I am, however many years later, and I can't get, I can't stop. I'm done with that. I said, we have nothing in common in the morning. I'll see you in the afternoon. What do you say when someone says you're not my cup of tea? I drink coffee anyway, so. Go fuck yourself. Excuse me, I'm choking on my coffee. Hey, does anybody want coffee? Thank you for tuning in. This is yours truly, Ralph William. <clears throat> All right, that's enough. You can follow me on Twitter at Ralph William. You can follow my internet station on X at WESN Radio. You can download our mobile app. And uh, you can give us a review, write something nice or neutral, and uh, let everybody know to come check us out. We got music, we got, you know, small businesses to support. We got uh, yours truly to do shows. <clears throat> so we greatly appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, now I'm going to have my sip of coffee. And as I usually do it, I usually have a ceremony type way of doing it. I have a little phrase. I do a little chant. You know what I'm saying? I. Uh, and then we all join in unison and sip together. <clears throat> if you have your coffee mugs, your travel mugs, your sippy cups, your doggy bowls, if you have a beer hat and you want to drink it like that, did I do that? Then go ahead and do so and join me in this sip of cafecito. Oh, that's hot. Mm. But I can't turn away. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> that is the stuff. You know what really makes the difference is the little things. I put a little dash of cinnamon in my coffee. Man, did that make a difference? For some reason, I am having trouble with my keyboard. <clears throat> I am not liking this. This is not good. I might need to do a total haul of my studio doing another cleaning because usually after a while you have to do a little cleaning of your workspace right <clears throat> because no matter how much you vacuum 
or whatever, you can find it filled with dust. Like dust just accumulates out of nowhere. And I'm like, yo, I just cleaned this. Like, why is there more dust? Rockwaller, I know what you mean, brother. I'm just sitting back and watching the world burn. I can use can air to blow my keyboard and uh, clean a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, like, I see dust on the floor. Like, if you rub your hand on it, you feel the dust. And I'm like, bro, I just cleaned this the other day. Like, what is going on? So, and of course, Rockwaller knows about wire management. So, uh, it usually it usually calls for another bout of wire management and uh, making sure everything is in the right hole and uh, everything is uh, put in the right spot wrapped around the right pole you know no wires are trippable you know the less you see the better so those are the things that need to be done today <clears throat> and um and see if i can fix this keyboard problem <clears throat> i can't for some reason my mouse works but my keyboard is like is not registering on my computer which is weird that makes no sense i don't know what i did wrong i see there's a light on i changed the battery the bluetooth and uh, not nothing i don't know what is happening rub your hand on it wait what Sometimes the wrong hole is the better hole. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it saves you money, too, when you do it in the wrong. Anyway. Um, save you a whole lot of money. About a million dollars worth. How much? Man, no, I don't even want to get into that. But damn these kids. Huh. Well. So, let us get into um, what I've been sent by you, the listeners. And see what's hot in the streets. Now, this is interesting. <clears throat> that is weird. Why does it do that? Like, whenever I go into my messages, whatever used to be there is not there anymore. <clears throat> All right, never mind. Sorry, Rockwell. I was going to start throwing in some stuff 
that you sent. And every and when I go back to your chat, there's nothing there. It just disappears. That is weird. All right, well. Let us move on here. All masterfully planned and executed. During the Civil War, the Constitutional Republic abandoned Congress, which forced President Lincoln to issue martial law. At this time, the Republic was taken over by foreign insurgents who replaced it with the United States of America, Inc in all caps in 1871. A corporation that had the same name, the United States, what better way to replace it without anyone noticing that they just got turned into a business and commercialized. Now, this corporation was later purchased by the banking powers behind the Fed in 1912. The Fed was created in 1913. Why did this happen? Well, the US was bankrupt when we sold the United States to foreign banking cartels, if you will, salvage liens were placed on every asset, check this out, including the people of the new federalized states. Now let's fast forward to 1933. An income tax was placed on the people to pay these foreign bankers who own the IMF, which owns the IRS. Look into what the IRS actually is. Who is the IMF owned by? You got to follow the money. Who funds it? It's the same people that own the United States Inc same few families and they're not American. So when I say foreign insurgents, that's what I mean. So 1933, USA Inc. goes bankrupt. An income tax is placed on its people. In other words, all masterfully planned and In other words, we got duped. Damn, y'all hear about this? The top 20 fast food restaurants got weed killer in the food. Man, weed killer is crazy. Most popular places like Panera Bread, Arby's got some fucking nerve. And then y'all see the rest? Lynn's Big Filet, like, damn. 100% of the top 20 fast food brands tested positive for glyphosate. Glyphosate is a synthetic compound that is particularly effective against perennial weeds. It's a non-selective herbicide, meaning it will kill most plants, preventing the plants from making certain proteins that are needed for plant growth. If it does this to plants, then what's it doing in your stomach? Fast food is consumed by 85 million Americans each day. And that contributes to America being the worst in the world in life expectancy, infant mortality, and diabetes. Glyphosate exposure can impact your mental health. It's a neurotoxic that can affect your brain. Poisonous to your nervous system, your gut health, and your immune system. But your gut is your second brain. That's why your serotonin, which is the happy hormone, is producing your stomach. So it makes sense. Serotonin and melatonin is both in your gut and they're important hormones that affect your mood, sleep, developing depression, violent and obsessive behavior, as well as suicidal and homicidal thoughts and actions. Glyphosate can also cause liver and organ damage. Levels was found in two samples of paneer bread, their Arby sandwiches, and the lowest level was found at Chipotle. Next lowest is Panda Express and McDonald's. What's your thoughts on this? Comment that below right now. Capture for article source. I'm doing a f Jeez. So we got some glyphosate in your fast food, man. That makes you all angry and stuff. Makes you feel all weird. What's up there, Mr. A? What's up? This is Mr. A. Well, I'm driving my truck in the morning and being rushed to get to work for these damn fools. 
I'm listening to WESN with my middle finger up. Wooly woo! What's up, creepers? Thank you for tuning in. It's Friday, people. Bomb it in all the building. Not second plane. That's a bomb. Oh, this is a little clip that might have well gotten lost in the in the past when uh, the two towers came down. It was a bomb. Bomb it in all the building. Not second plane. That was a bomb. Who said the second plane? That's what we're told. Second plane. No, we saw it on television. Everything. All right. Thanks a lot. What happened was I was down in the basement. All of a sudden we heard a, a, a loud bang. And the elevator doors blew open. Some guy was, was burnt up. So I dragged him out. His, his skin was all hanging off. So I dragged him out. And I pulled him out of the parking lot. And this was what was left on him. Pulled him out. When I pulled him out, I looked up. And the second one, the second bomb blew off. Just saw a burst, a big burst. All of a sudden, you heard a loud explosion. So we all ran to look. And the first building was a big hole on the side of it. And on the other side went in flames. So we stood there in shock. Everyone screaming. A woman collapsed on me. I had to lay her down on my textbooks. And then before you know it, out of nowhere, the next building blew up. And then every, all of a sudden, everybody's in a stand. Everyone's running all over the place. The panic attack. We actually didn't see the second plane, but we saw the explosion hit the other tower. That has to be a bomb, right? Yes, of course. That exploded right in front of us. No, a bomb. I saw it. A, no, no plane hit nothing. That is not a plane. They don't know what they're talking about. How would they see a plane hit, hit that? Dude, I saw the second explosion. That was no plane that hit the second building. It exploded from the yeah. inside out. I did not see a plane. I didn't, they said the plane hit the first building. The second building just exploded. That looks like a second plane. I did not see a plane go in. That just exploded. Right. Isn't that weird? A lot of accounts of a bomb. No second plane. I think I was watching this guy, this live guy. Uh, don't ask me where, because, you know, there's no surprise there. But he mentioned this name. See if I can remember the name. And he told me to look for this guy. He didn't tell me personally, but, you know. I think his name is Christopher Bolin. Maybe some of you might know him. Maybe some of you might not, right? But he pretty much said, talked about the whole 9-11 It is thing. when you see this, ladies and gentlemen. I've got two gentlemen here, Chris Pratt and whoa, <laughs> Chris Pratt. Chris two Chris's. <laughs> Spelled like Amelin, right? Right. Uh, who will be talking about solving 9-11 and a bunch of other things, okay? Uh, Chris has written a number of books. We've got his website up behind us here. And I have to tell you, that that website has a... Oh, sure no, wait. Okay. That website has so much stuff on it. Uh, the only thing I guess I can ask you is tell people how to access your website and play with it a little bit because there's so there's so much in there. I mean, I copied four pages sure. that I was going to bring in here, and you got the you got the camera. 
Sure. The easiest thing is to go to the website is uh, my last name, bolin.com. That's B-O-L-L-Y-N.com. And uh, the articles that are on the front page are, are chronologically organized from the most recent, you know, down. But on the left margin, there's a, a tab called list of articles. So if somebody's interested in a specific article, they can click on that tab. And when that page opens up, they, can, they have the entire list of all the articles on the website. And they're all so, links. Yeah, they're all, they're all links. And they open up that specific article in its own page. So that's easier to work with. Okay. Well, as I said, I'm Tom Fennell. This is Chris. This is Chris. <laughs> and as I understand it, this Chris is going to interview this Chris because this is... A all right. I'm going to let that keep going, but... <clears throat> See if we get to some uh, nooks and crannies of things. But there's a lot of accounts. He's an actual supposed journalist. So there's a lot of things that he has questions about. And that's kind of like what's lacking nowadays from everyday journalists, right? Supposed journalists. Stuff there. Uh, there's, there's actually three good videos, introductory videos. I think they're called 9-11s. Mm -hmm. I think they're the end of your video series. But if you want to get a fairly quick, because I think most of them are only like 10 minutes long or mm -hmm. something, overview of, of what Chris's message is, that, that's a good one to take a Visit look at. Visit that site and, and explore it, huh? Yeah. You can explore it for about two weeks, I think. If you you really could spend here. a lot of time there. What hold up the two books there? Oh, yeah. Here's, uh, the, here's the two books that he wrote. Can you see them? No. <laughs> Where should I go over here? All right, so I don't know. They're just going through the whole shenanigans. I want to see how how it goes to like. Professor Jones was attacked in a radio interview on National Public Radio, and he was removed from his position as a a teacher at at at, B, at BYU, at um, in Provo, Utah. So um, we could see that that he and I were attacked within a three week period. Mm -hmm. And we both we both basically lost our incomes, um, and and it was the the connection is that we were both working on this discovery that was not supposed to happen of thermite and nanothermite in the World Trade Center. And what happened to you? Well, it, it was a, a very strange thing. Um, it was summertime. It was August two thousand six. Uh, we had, as I said, we just been back at our home for a, a few days, and. The very first day I got home, I was up on the roof uh, working on the vent, and uh, I saw that a police car stopped in front of my house, and they were looking at me on the roof and, like, taking notes. And I thought, this is odd. You know, what is this, what is this kind of surveillance? And then um, uh, we saw that there was a lot of police activity around my house. They would go around the house, like, every hour. Oh. And, and so they were obviously keeping an eye on us. And then... Uh, a few days later, um, I was on the on a bicycle riding to the to the store, and a car passed me, um, just going slowly. And I looked down into the car; it was going we were going different directions, and I could see that there were three heavily armed men in there, wearing body armor. But this was not a any external sort external of, body. Yeah, armor? they were wearing external blue, you know, body so, shields. So they weren't vests. trying to hide anything. No, they weren't hiding anything, and they were going. They were about a block from my house, and they were going in the direction of my house. And I thought, well, this is getting serious. Mm. And I told my wife about that, and I said, this is very odd because we live in a very quiet residential area. There's no need for any sort of SWAT team activity yeah. on a normal day. And Where is this, by the way? It's in a place called Hoffman Estates, Illinois. 
which is a, a, a suburb of northwest suburb of Chicago in Cook County. And uh, then the next day, I came out at the end of the day, about five o'clock, six o'clock in the evening. I stepped out on the porch and the same car is going right. What's up, Radio Parlesque? How are you, man? We're just going through uh, <clears throat> some guy named uh, Christopher Bolin. I guess he kind of discussed um, his thoughts on uh, 9-11. Pretty shout out. I, I should have like gone through it and picked out the best you know things. I mean, we don't really need to go through them. I just, you know, just trying to give you guys something entertaining. My uh, my computer is shot, so I can't do anything else. Um, but yeah, these things seems to be interesting. But how are you, Radio Parlesque? What is new with you, brother? How's uh, how's the roads of Canada treating you? You got any uh, any migrants trying to take your truck? Yeah, Rockwather, you might have a point there. Driveway, and she had stopped them halfway up up the driveway. But this is all on my property, and she stopped. To say, well, the, the 9/11 led us to the invasion of Afghanistan and the war on terror. But of course, right? That's the linear. But the fact is, is that the war on terror is an old construct, an older construct, and it was it was set out as an ideology, as a plan, as a strategy already in 1979 by Benjamin Netanyahu okay, at, the Institute. Net at the Netanyahu Institute on Terrorism, sometimes referred to as the Yonatan Institute. What? And in 1979, they had a conference called the Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism, where George Herbert in Walker... In 1979. 1979, July. And, and George Herbert Walker Bush spoke there, you know, the former CIA director and then candidate for vice president or president of the United States. And... Uh, the thing is that they constructed, they laid out this propaganda push calling for the United States to basically, and the Western democracies, to bring their militaries to the Middle East to fight the terrorist entities that were plaguing Israel. And they, they were doing this, the, 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 the doctrine goes like this. Israel says, Netanyahu says, that Israel is attacked by Islamic terrorists, not because of any sort of Palestinian dispute or, or occupation, but because Israel is a Western nation. Therefore, by that logic, the West is actually the target. Israel's only being hit because they're the ones that are further extended into the region. But he says the real target is the West. Therefore, the West has an obligation to come and bring its militaries in the Middle East to, to make war against these entities that are attacking Israel. So in this way, he kind of, he kind of conflates Israel with the... Wow, this all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Our problems, you see? And... This was in 1979. It was pushed with a. It was a very fraudulent data. The you know the, the the logic is flawed and the data is flawed. Never mind. The doctrine was put out there. So they constructed this, and then for years later, he wrote books called "Fighting Terrorism: How the West Can Win" and things like that, where he continued to reiterate this this notion, this idea, this strategy. This thing that the, the theme. West the West needed to be involved with, with yes. Israeli problems. Yes, and that this should be a global war on terror, and that the United States should lead it. And so they constructed, you know, this, this whole construct, ideological construct, and it sat there like a, like a bonfire ready to be lit. 
And, and, and so 9-11 was the spark that actually made that real. And on September 11th, for example, the, the, the highest Israeli soldier and the former prime minister, Ehud Barak, was on the BBC World Television before the towers even fell. They, both towers had been struck by the planes, but the buildings hadn't fallen yet. So you can see that's very early on. And, and he was on TV, and, 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 which is BBC World is the largest English-speaking TV network in the world. And he said, the world will never be the same from today on. He says, we know who did this. We know it's Osama bin Laden. And we know where Osama bin Laden is. And he said, now is the time for the United States to begin a concrete operational war on terror. Operational being the key word. Now, uh, what's going on, Mark? We're just going through this uh, clip of a gentleman named Christopher Bolin who has his take on what happened in 9-11. And some of these things that he's saying kind of sounds similar to what's happening today with uh, Israel and Palestine. To kind exactly. Of exactly. And that was, who was the, what, what is the name of that? The American, oh, um, remember there was a neocon think tank and they came up with PNAC. Project for the New American right, Century. Right, yep. right, right. And didn't they talk about what we need is a, a new Pearl Harbor kind of a... Yes. That was their exact words. Yes. <laughs> they called for a cataclysmic and catastrophic event like 9-11 that would, that would make this change happen that they were talking about. And that's exactly what happened. And, and furthermore, we know that from um, General Wesley Clark, when he was walking through the Pentagon after 9-11, he heard that the, the operation that was going to go into effect was going to basically um, conduct regime change in seven nations. This was right after 9-11, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Like the next week yes, or something. Yes, just yeah. a few days after. <laughs> just a few days after because, you know, the war started in, um, in Afghanistan a week later, basically. Uh, and no, a couple weeks later. But he said that the, he, he, he mentions the, the seven nations. And of those seven nations that he mentions, five of them have already been done. Mm-hmm. The only two that haven't been done on his original list are Lebanon and Iran. So most of the world thinks that, that we're going into these countries to uh, eliminate a terrorist threat to our own country. What would you say to that? Well, in, in, in the case of Afghanistan, that was the narrative. That, that, you know, um, the, the people who carried out 9-11 were supposedly um, entrenched in the Afghan Arab community, you know, that had been cultivated during the Soviet, the war against the Soviet Union, and that had remained behind the Osama bin Laden and, and this crew. And what's interesting to note, one of, the, one of the more recent articles I've been writing about is how the initial cadre of, of anti-Western Arabs um, in, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, was actually trained by and armed by the state of Israel, by Israeli military intelligence in 1983, 84, 85. That's when they started. And what happened, this was the, this was the uh, group called Hezb Islami, um, headed by Gulbadin Hekmatyar. And the United States was providing, the CIA was providing money, Saudi Arabia was providing money, Israel was providing the weapons that they had, they had captured on the field in, in, Af in uh, Lebanon. But besides the weaponry, they were providing the uh, the training. So uh, I'm 
I haven't really gone through this whole thing. I'm sort of learning with you guys as well, if you're listening. But my understanding is that these wars seem manufactured. Like, I, I heard this gentleman say that in whatever his name is, however you say his name is, um, that he is only in power because of, or he, or there is, um, how do you say, wars are manufactured so that he can be relevant, I guess is another way of saying it. It's like, if a general is in time of peace, then you won't have a need for a general, right? So, but if you have a new, you know, boogeyman or boogeyman or boogie, whatever pronoun you want to throw in there, um, then, oh, then you need to reelect me and I'll make sure to get rid of the boogeyman with dun, 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 United States women and children. Yeah. I, I, if I'm getting that right, that might be the whole spiel that Christopher Bolin is talking about. Yeah. They took Yugoslavia and broke it into like seven minor states. That ended up fighting amongst themselves. Yes. Yes. You, you create division. And what they did in Iraq, for example, is they got the they got the Sunni and the Shiite fighting each other, and the, and the Kurd fighting both, and so that you broke the country into three pieces, which is exactly what the Israelis wanted. They're doing the same thing in Syria. They did the same thing in Libya. Um, Yemen is a, another example. So it's basically divide and conquer. Now, didn't you work in Iraq for a while? Or? I worked in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. <laughs> So were you privy to any of this while you were working well, there? Well, this was really before all of this stuff was happening. Okay. And the Saudis themselves aren't very political. Oh. And the Americans working over there weren't very political either. So <laughs> they're all this, just we fat and happy we there. Even, we weren't even talking about this over beers, you know. Yeah. And yeah. there were was beer in Saudi Arabia. Right <laughs> <laughs> sure there was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. The net result of all this would be to um, um, instigate a policy that would uh, almost disarm Israeli, the major uh, um, mm -hmm. foes that Israeli was facing. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the Yanon plan specifically calls for that. They talk about the long-term plan being breaking up these nations into small pieces, which is the long-term plan. But the short-term plan, they say, is to... Um, dissolve the military structures that of these nations that threaten them. And, uh, for example, what, what happened in, in Iraq is as soon as the United States got into Iraq and, and, and took over the country, they disbanded the military, which seems very odd. Why would you do that? I mean, you, you're going to need, uh, you know, you're going to need some structure in the nation. You're going to need some sort of army. Mm. Um, but rather than just, uh, you know, taking over the country, they disbanded the entire military. What would you say to people that would say we went to Iraq primarily for oil? Well, that's not the main reason. Not at all. Really? Um, you know, th th that is like putting the uh, uh, putting the blame where it doesn't belong. We didn't go there for oil. 
Um, it's very believable that we did, though. Yeah, because it's very tangible. You can yeah. say, you can say, look at how you know. And and they did, they did a lot of oil was stolen. That's true, but that's not the main reason. You know, if you compare the value of the oil that was stolen or the value of Iraqi oil production compared to the amount of money the American people have paid to wage these wars and to maintain this war on terror, the war on terror just in, is costing us still every day. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Just the campaign in Afghanistan costs four million dollars per hour. Per hour? Yeah. Well, that's not to mention uh, what is it—the fourteen point something billion dollars that we are about to send to Israel for this shenanigans, which they are going to be taking out of the IRS budget uh, for the upcoming years. Basically, bleeding this country dry because it's borrowed money. We're, we're borrowing money to wage the war on terror. Now, 15 years, and so the political crisis that I'm talking about is that here we are in an election year, and there is no candidate who's calling for an end to the war on terror. It's a criminal fraud. 9/11 was a was a hoax or a fraud, and the war on terror is a fraud. But it's a fraud that we're paying very dearly for. And if we don't end this, the whole world is paying dearly. Yes, the whole world is paying, and of course, the countries that are being attacked are paying, you know, terribly, terrible prices. But the American people are the ones who are bankrolling the whole thing. If you bankrolling, if you will, but it's really borrowed money. So what is what's really happening is that more debt is being imposed on the American people, and our country is becoming more and more enslaved to the bankers. Ah. To. Basically, a non-existent terrorist threat. I think it was Reason Magazine or some other alternative media publication that said the chances of an American citizen dying from a from a, a, a terrorist assault domestically is less than getting struck by lightning. So I think I saw mean, the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the the probability of dying from a terrorist attack is almost non-existent. You're know, doing forty billion dollars a year in homeland security. Right. And, you, you can address that, but here right. we are uh, going through this process with a terrorist threat that is almost non-existent or non-measurable. Right. And if you look at the dollar spent versus cancer or heart right. or some smoking or some other very tangible things, it's right. unreal. Yeah, there's, it's, the United States is spent, currently spending something like $400 million per year per U.S. victim of terrorism. Now that that of course that calculation will be a little bit different now that we've had this atrocity in Orlando, mm. which in which fifty people were killed. Um, but still, as you say, the, the 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 number of people who are killed in in the United States by terrorism every year it's 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 a very small number. Yet we're spending all this money to wage this war. So you can see that it doesn't fit. Yeah, it doesn't. So let me just pause that for a moment. Um, I said maybe like 14 something billion. Uh, Muck says 100 billion. Let's find out and see <clears throat> how much we are sending to Israel. How much money are we sending out to help Israel in the fight against Palestine? Searching for how much money is U.S. sending to Israel to fight Palestine? According to a recent article by U.S. 
News. The United States has given Israel more aid than any other nation since World War II, really? granting it more than $260 billion in combined military wow. and economic aid. The same article also states that in 2021, U.S. obligations to Israel amounted to $3.31 billion. It is important to note that the U.S. provides aid to Israel for various reasons, including its strategic importance in the Middle East, shared democratic values, yeah, and sure. the U.S.'s commitment to Israel's security. Right. I hope this information helps. Does that money come from taxpayers of the United States? Let's see if there's some bias here on the AI. Searching for, where does USA to Israel come from? Yes, the money that the United States provides to Israel comes from taxpayers' money. Oh. The U.S. government provides aid to Israel for various reasons, including its strategic importance in the Middle East, shared democratic values, and the U.S.'s commitment to Israel's security. I hope this information helps. So, who's flipping the bill for all this uh, war? You, the taxpaying American that tries to do things the right way. Hmm. Does giving out a lot of aid to other countries help inflation in the United States? I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe. Searching for, does giving out a lot of aid to other countries help inflation in the United States? The relationship between foreign aid and inflation in the United States is a complex one, and there is no clear consensus on whether foreign aid causes inflation. Of course. Some experts argue that foreign aid can lead to inflation in recipient countries by increasing the money supply and driving up prices. However, others argue that foreign aid can actually help to reduce inflation by promoting economic growth and stability in recipient countries. It is important to note that the United States provides foreign aid to other countries for various reasons, including promoting global stability, supporting economic development, and advancing U.S. foreign policy goals. I hope this information helps. From an economic standpoint, use economic theories and stuff like that. Does the amount that goes out to help other countries help the rate of inflation in the original country searching for does foreign aid cause inflation in the u.s the relationship between foreign aid and inflation in the united states is a complex one oh and there God. is no clear consensus on whether foreign aid causes inflation why some experts argue that foreign aid can lead to inflation in recipient countries by increasing the money supply Give me an example of foreign aid increasing inflation. Searching for foreign aid inflation example. One example of foreign aid increasing inflation is Somalia. According to a report by Somalia Report, the average expenses of a Somali middle-level income family were $100 to $150 per month but have gone up to over $200 per month because of inflation, whereby the supply of goods decreases and the demand increases. 
It is important to note that the relationship between foreign aid and inflation in the United States is a complex one, and there is no clear consensus. All right, so let me try a different. Let's try a different AI. Can you explain to me economics revolving inflation and foreign aid between countries? Absolutely, Ralph William. In simple terms, inflation refers to the general increase in prices and fall in the purchasing value of money. When a country experiences inflation, it means that over time, you need more money to buy the same goods or services. Now regarding foreign aid, this is when one country provides resources like money or goods to another country to help with its development or to respond to crises. This aid can affect inflation in a few ways. If foreign aid is used effectively, it can help a country develop its economy by improving infrastructure, education, or healthcare. This can lead to more productivity and potentially lower inflation in the long run. However, if a country receives a lot of foreign aid and spends it immediately without investing in growth, it can increase demand for goods and services too quickly. That can actually drive prices up, contributing to inflation. Foreign aid can also influence a country's currency value. If the aid is in a foreign currency, it can increase the supply of the donor's currency in the recipient country, potentially affecting exchange rates. This can make imports cheaper, which might help control inflation, but it can also impact local producers who find it harder to compete with cheaper imported goods. So in essence, the relationship between inflation and foreign aid is complex, and the effects can vary greatly depending on how the aid is used and the economic context of the countries involved. So how does giving foreign aid out to other countries affect the country that gives the foreign aid out when a country gives out foreign aid to others it's it's usually aiming to support the recipient country's development or provide humanitarian aid during crises the impact on the economy of the donating country can be nuanced on one hand providing foreign aid can be a tool for economic diplomacy it can open up new markets for the donor country's goods and services and create investment opportunities for its companies. It might also foster political stability and alliances that can be beneficial economically. On the other hand, critics argue that foreign aid can be expensive and might lead to higher taxes or government debt in the donor country. There's also debate about how effective foreign aid is in promoting development and whether it provides value for money for taxpayers in the donor country. It's important to note, though, that for many countries, the amount spent on foreign aid is a very small portion of the overall budget, so its direct impact on the donor country's economy, including inflation, may be limited. The real effects often lie more in the geopolitical and strategic advantages it might provide. Give me examples of the past where giving out foreign aid has affected... Oh, Certainly. 
Here are a couple of historical examples where foreign aid has played a significant role. First, the Marshall Plan after World War II, where the United States provided over $12 billion, which would be worth over $100 billion in today's money, oh. to help rebuild Western European economies. This aid was crucial in reviving industry and preventing economic collapse. And it also established strong economic ties and alliances between the U.S. and Western Europe. Second, the United States has provided aid to countries like South Korea after the Korean War. This aid, along with other factors, helped South Korea transition from a war-torn country to a developed economy. South Korea is now an aid donor itself and a global leader in industries like technology and automobiles. These examples show how foreign aid can have long-lasting impacts on the development trajectories of countries and also shape international relations. How has that aid affected inflation in the past? Aid can affect inflation in recipient countries in a couple of ways. Here are two notable instances. One, post-World War II Europe. In the aftermath of the war, many European economies were in ruins, which could have led to hyperinflation due to shortages of goods and a lack of productive capacity. The Marshall Plan, which provided American aid to rebuild these economies, helped stabilize them. By boosting production and rebuilding infrastructure, the plan helped to prevent the rampant inflation that typically follows a major war. Two modern day Zimbabwe. Contrastingly, when Zimbabwe experienced a massive economic crisis in the early 2000s, partly due to land reforms that disrupted agriculture, one of its main economic sectors, the country received significant amounts of foreign aid. However, the government's mismanagement of these funds, along with other economic policies, led to hyperinflation reaching an almost incomprehensible rate in the millions of percent. These examples illustrate how aid can either help control inflation by restoring economic stability and productive capacity or contribute to inflation if not used properly, leading to excess demand without an increase in supply. Tell it to me in simpler terms and how does it affect the donor country? It seems like there might've been a pause. If you have any other questions or need further clarification on this topic, feel free to let me know. We can explore more examples or discuss how aid affects inflation in different scenarios. <clears throat> tell it to me in tell it to me in simple term, how does it affect donor countries? In simple terms, when a country gives foreign aid, it doesn't usually have a big impact on its own inflation. Here's why. The amount of money spent on foreign aid is typically a very small part of the donor country's total budget. If the aid is given in the form of goods, it doesn't directly affect the money supply, which is a big factor in inflation. Also, the donor country might provide aid with the condition that the money is spent on goods and services from the donor country, which can actually benefit its economy. In short, for the donor country, the effect of giving aid on inflation is generally small. The bigger effects are often more about politics and trade than about inflation. How has this effect, how has this affected the United States in the past? Tell it to me simply. In simple terms, the United States has generally not seen a direct impact on its inflation giving foreign aid. 
The U.S. economy is very large, and the amount of money it spends on foreign aid is relatively small in comparison. So even though it gives out billions of dollars in aid, it's just a tiny slice of the overall national budget. That means it doesn't really push up prices at home or cause inflation to rise. Plus, by giving aid, the U.S. often promotes stability and opens up trade opportunities, which can be good for the economy. So, so tell me, uh, I don't know why this one doesn't want to. If you're wondering about more effects or have any specific questions on the topic, feel free to ask. We can discuss how U.S. foreign aid has influenced its relationships with other countries or delve into different aspects of its economic impact. Whatever you need, I'm here to explain. Tell, 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 hello, can you hear me? Tell it to me simply. Sorry, I'm having it. All right, shut up. All right. Well, from my understanding, and I think Muck probably said it earlier in the chat, that it doesn't affect inflation. Just the Federal Reserve, right? Is that correct? This might be too early for these uh, conversations, but. Ralph. Let me say this, Ralph. It's never yes, too early for learning, but it's always too early for ignorance. None of us should ever be ignorant to what's happening directly to us or the people we love. We should never be or never want to be ignorant enough not to understand the sign of the times. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Um, I think you might need to lower the valid guy here at Neko. Oh, they went away. All right, we'll okay. Go. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm because this is how I like to use technology is to make things simple for me because all this foreign aid and just global affairs gets very confusing really quick. So I try to have it explain certain things simply to me because if you know what, well, yeah, there are no simple political uh, uh, explanations. Let me let me tell you why. Right. It's designed to be confusing. As a matter of fact, they even have a school of thought that's taught in colleges and universities that they call political science. You have to be a political science major to understand what's really going on. That's how confusing it is. Yeah, no, you're right. Um <clears throat> These things get very like cumbersome and there's so many factors to take into account. But what I'm trying to get is to like the common denominator where it affects everyday people. Like how does this affect everyday people? Well, they raise taxes, right? Because mm -hmm. of these things. Well, well, check this out. The reason why it affects everyday people is because everyday people participate in the very system that put the politicians in office. So, of course, when they do something, it's going to affect us directly because they represent us. So if they steal money from one of us, guess what they're doing? 
they're in effect stealing money from all of us. So we could never look at ourselves individually when we have a collective system called the political system in place. So, man, because I feel like at my age, like my whole worldview is shattered. Not only because I was like, I've been sheltered for a good portion of it, right? Like I try to be out there in the world. But you teach your kids, you know, how you should be, you know, do the right thing, you know, play by the rules. But if you play by the rules, then usually it's all stacked against you. And really... Let me say this, Ralph, because I'm glad you just brought that point up. Oh, my God, you just made a very brilliant point. Listen, you said you teach your kids how to play the rules and, you know, go by the, you know, the societal guidelines, right? Right. But what you don't tell your kids is there is a political machine out there that if you play by the rules, you are subjecting yourself to the heartache and heartbreak of the machine. Think about this. They tell you if you work real hard and get a job and you can get ahead and you can be this, that, and the third, right? Well, if there's only one president every four years, chances are if you live to be 60 years old with all the people that's campaigning for president, in your lifetime, you might not ever be one. See, we, we don't tell our kids the truth because the truth is not in what we're learning. The truth ain't in the church. It's not in the synagogue. It's not in the mosque. The truth is nowhere to be found other than through education. And that's why they don't like education. That's why education is the most expensive. Check this out. Do you know education keep more people in debt than homes does, than cars I does? I believe it. Because yeah. they don't want you getting it's an a, education. It's a fantasy. At least the, their education that they want to give you, you know, it's a fantasy. Like, oh, yeah, come to this school for four years. And pay a hundred thousand dollars in the yeah, process. Hundred thousand dollars in debt and get a degree that you don't really need. But you know what? They do that everywhere. If you go to church, right? They say in church you're supposed to pay tithes and offerings. Well, you go to church and they ask you for money every week. They don't care if your lights are paid, your phone. They want you to pay for all this misinformation that's really not helping you. You're not guaranteed to get a job out of college. You're not guaranteed to get your prayer answered, giving money to the church. Like, nothing is guaranteed. So can you really blame kids or maybe organized crime, however you want to call them, uh, that they catch on camera ransacking these stores and taking all the, uh, you know, products from the shelves and just walking out with them? or running out with them like can you really i can't this shake up the what we what we see as morality nowadays because like if they're not playing by the rules then why should we all right let me say this let me say this let me say mm -hmm. this all right if you look at the kennedy family right okay. the kennedy family john f kennedy's father teddy mm -hmm. kennedy's father uh -huh. he was the one of the number one bootleggers in america did you know that he was doing moonshine all throughout the nation? Then you look at the politicians, 
like Biden going, Biden and his son going over to Ukraine, making backdoor deals with Ukraine and Russia, uh, China, uh, chilling, mm-hmm. dealing with Donald Trump, and everybody's a criminal. If if it if it wasn't for criminality in America, America would not have any money. Do you know? Think, check this out. If you ride down the street and you're and you're speeding, your speeding ticket give just as much money to the United States as the taxpayers does. Most cities they wouldn't they would fall apart if they if crime didn't exist. Do you know that? They will fall apart overnight. Uh, they will cease to exist. Crime is necessary in America. You know, you're you're uh, you're sparking something that I had a thought of like a while back. Like with everything that this country has gone through over the past couple of years with the pandemic, and then so many different f- sides fighting each other on what they believe in and the stance on the country, and then the vaccines and all that. And all of these lawsuits uh, that happened throughout these three or four years, and of course, a bunch of them happening with Trump, Mm -hmm. how much money is being circulated through the system through court fees, lawyer fees, you know, uh, journalists covering the story, you know, you know, people asking for money to help fight their quote unquote fighting for your freedoms. You know, all this money gets circulated into the system. Trillions so, of dollars. Yeah, trillions, trillions of, of dollars. And mostly through crime, like you said. You know, when I, I did a, uh, I covered a, an article that in New York, for those same people that have been ransacking stores. It's been like the same amount of people every time. I think it was like 200 and some individuals or groups that kept committing these same crimes, like going through stores and ransacking. Check this out. Check this out. But that's crime on a small small time level. Think about this. You might not know the name or you might can't remember the name of every president, right? But you know who Al Capone is. You know who Bugs Moran is, because they're glorified through, exactly. through Hollywood. They're icons, and not only that, they're icons because the criminals everywhere are icons. If you go to Italy, Stalin is an icon. You go to uh, Germany, uh, uh, what's it? Hitler is an icon. Everybody's criminals. So how, how do you justify Gandhi then? Like, how? Why was Gandhi known so well? I mean, Gandhi, had some questionable Gandhi was things. criminal. Gandhi was criminal also. Think about this: just because he killed himself for a cause, and, and really put it this way, he almost had to do that because the people where Gandhi was, had he not did that, they were going to kill him anyway. Did you know that Gandhi was about to get killed anyway? So. He did himself a favor taking himself out in the fire. So, therefore, we, we got to start looking at this world. Who are most of the people praising? It seems like most of the people, especially the people who are in, a, who are in power, who are authoritative, it seems like they're following a Satan more than the God that we know of. 
Yeah, that's one thing that I mentioned uh, to a buddy of mine. Well, to a bunch of people, it's like it feels like this world looks down upon people that try to like uh, try to do things the right way. Like if exactly. you if you don't if you don't have um, promiscuous relations with people, you looked at like as there's something wrong with you. Think you about know, this. Rough, if you don't go rough. out and party every weekend and do drugs or or drink every weekend, you look that differently. I'm exactly. Like, Bro, rough, why dude. why are everybody looking at me wrong? Because I don't want to get shit faced every day. Exactly. You know you, I don't get you it. know what it is though, Ralph. Check this out. If you get a girl and she don't want to put out the first night or the second night, mm. you'll be looking at her like, damn, you know, she must think she must goody two shoes, right? If yeah, that's a another thing. Like, that, they think like women oh. will think they gay. Like right. if if, if you, so the thing about it is, before we know anything about each other, you're going to see put downs. You're going to feel the put downs. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, like, um, <laughs> it because this world uh, obviously we're all sinners according according to God, right? Like we're all sinners, but then no, according to the Bible, not the according Bible. to God. Yeah, because okay. we never heard His voice. Okay, well, according to the Bible, we're all sinners. So mm. by that accord, like it for the simple fact of trying not to be, you know, everybody else thinks that you. It. I don't know. It, it just it just makes it seem like you're worse than the average sinner because you're making the effort not to sin. Whereas, like, why do you even try? Because you're automatically a sinner, according to the Bible. Everybody that you're around, or see, put it this way. If you hear something over and over again, according to Hitler and psychologists, you'll begin to believe it, right? Well, if that's the case, most of the people that surround us are living up to their sinnership. Just because you're not living up to your sinnership, that means you're the odd person out. Now you're looked at as an anomaly instead of somebody who should be respected in society. So you become an outcast trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I believe I understand what you're saying. And and in a, in a lot of Hollywood portrayals like people that they put out there as being like what do they call them pillars of society yeah tend to be the worst of the people because they always have something hidden in their closet right so then it makes it feel like if you don't sin or if you don't do it's kind of like they the conspiracy theories when they say Oh, if you want to be a part of the elite club in politics or or the higher ups, like you have to do some heinous shit in order I to be a part true. of it. I think I mean, that's I mean, I think so too because that's just you know why not? Like if you have something on somebody else that they did, and you because have proof check of this, it, Ralph, that's like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put you in a position unless I got something on you. You're not going to put me in a position unless you have something on. So that way, if I cross you, you could pull my you could pull my coattail, right? And be like, "Yo, you know, I got these pictures, bro. You better straighten your act up." See, and that's what it. it we don't think like that. The the people in power that is how they think. 
Yeah, because in their mind, everyone is is a sinner, guilty, and evil, right? And, and we all have a price. And yeah. yeah, and we all have a price, and and it's all about who has enough power to overcome someone else, right? Exactly. So that's what. So how does how do not how do we fight it, but like what do you do to a young kid or young adult going through this world and you know, like, do you tell them the truth? Like, look, don't fight in the street or don't fight in the classroom or don't talk back to your your teacher. But it doesn't really matter because what they're teaching you is garbage or, you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, well, how do you be a funny person in society without getting played? Put it put it this way. We're all, at some point, we will all be played. Mm. That that's, the, that, that's first and foremost. We're all going to get played. In the society, like, think about this, Ralph. You're not doing what your aspirations was as a younger adult or a younger child to do. Right. You're not fulfilling those. And the reason that you're not fulfilling those is not because you didn't do enough or, or, or did more than enough to be there. It's just that in society, you're not going to get everything you want based on nepotism. See, let me say this. The nepotists get whatever they want. It's people that's born that their dad was the head of Dodge or Christ. They automatically get in because they got legacy there. Their father was there. Their grandfather was. We didn't have people in uh, certain places or industries that to give us the direct connection to that. You have to be connected in America. Mm-hmm. You don't just get stuff because you want it. Yeah. So um, I have an example, and I don't want to say too much because, you know, somebody in the family, but it's um, they, they, from what I understand, they spend most of their time, you know, getting high, hanging with their friends, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, probably doing some illegal i don't know well maybe illegal things but like not like crazy as far as i know right Mm -hmm. and they get offered a job working at a place where it may not be as much as their what they used to getting but it's it's uh honest work and it's guaranteed money every week or every two weeks and they continuously turn it down because they want to try and get something better than what they're usually getting without having to work so hard like a regular person. You know, uh-huh. How do you how do you combat that? Like cuz then you have a different Have you you seen the movie um uh what was it called um something in the Bronx. I forgot the name of the movie. A Bronx Tale. A Bronx Tale, I believe. Yeah. You you understand yeah. the the father and the son and he's yeah. a problem yeah, that's the son want to sell drugs and stuff and be with the mafia while the dad wanted him to take an honest job like a bus driver. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So how that. do you manage that? Like, and, and this is supposed to be an old school in old school times. Mm-hmm. So now well, nowadays, you're like an idiot if you don't try and take that easy money. You know. Well, well, well you know, the easy money is always going to be the more lucrative role. And that's why, uh, do you know he said it best, Cologino, the son that you're talking about in the movie The Bronx Tale, 
they taught him that the working man was actually the sucker. Now, check this out. If that's not true, why do you think most pastors who could have been farmers when they were young and saw how hard it was to get up and work and bell hay and stuff, they said God called them. God didn't call them. An easier way of life called them. Mm. See, and that's what it is. We got to understand that most people are going to take the easy way out if they're given two options. No, that, and that's and and if we're just human beings. We always try to be. You know, we don't want to go through any hardship. You know, it's it takes a special individual to be able to take uh, torture and just ask our military. But in terms of like society, it just it 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 just sucks because. <clears throat> It's like you want to be upset at people for not being hard workers mm -hmm. or not putting in pulling in their weight, but then you're thinking like, yeah, but why would they kill themselves for pennies when you got people here who barely lift a finger and they're making million dollar deals? Did you see what happened? Did you see what happened during COVID? What was the speaker of the house? That lady. What was her name? Her husband. Uh, Pelosi. I forgot Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. Yes. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi, when the vaccines first came out, mm -hmm. do you know what she did? She cleared $20 million mm -hmm. out of her personal bank account to mm -hmm. invest in the vaccines. Because you know why? She was expecting billions, if not hundreds of millions, to take that vaccinated shot. Do you know what her kickback would have looked like if everybody pretty much in the world would have taken that? See, the thing about it is, is they tell us, hey, we'll work hard and do. See, that's the American dream has been the American lie. Nobody has worked. People were given opportunities. Did you know that? Did you know? that in the 1940s, that the Italians were given the fire department, the Irish were given the police department, and the European Jews were given those, uh, what's the, the, the jobs that you take that test for? What's that test? The civil service, they were given the civil service department. Did you know that? Jews? People were given that, yeah. Mm -hmm. They were okay. given that. So if you went to most of those civil service departments between the late 1940s, early 1950s, and the 1960s, mostly Jews were doing that. If you went to the police department, mostly Irish were, were there. If you went to the fire department, mostly Italians were there. Mm -hmm. See, you got to remember at one time, the same signs that said blacks need not apply, said Irish need not apply, Polish need not apply, Jews need not not apply. It said all of them. Mm -hmm. But then af after a while, certain ethnics began coming off of the signs. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't know see, that. See, that's, we have to know that history. Well, there you go. All right. I'm sorry, Ralph. No, that's fine. That's fine. I, it's always a learning experience with me, bro. Like uh, I'm just trying to get make sense of this whole like <clears throat> just the world we live in, because 
I was using the war in uh, in, in in Israel and Palestine as an example, like because we see both sides, not not knowing like what's the real truth, and we may never know, right? It, we may never mm. know the real truth, but then people start going into history. So I I wanted to go through, you know, that earlier with uh, this this gentleman and Christopher uh, Boland who who pretty much I said, yeah yeah. Pretty much said that the uh, is it there's it was manufactured and there's it's pretty much I I didn't get to hear the whole thing but I'm assuming he was aiming towards uh, that it's it's manufactured to bring more I guess uh, Western culture into but a lot did of you places. but did you know did you know that all wars mm-hmm. were manufactured There's a book that I think everybody needs to read. And it's called, in his own words, it's about Hitler. Mm-hmm. And Hitler tells how he was forced into war. Mm-hmm. Forced it. To, put it this way. We have a military complex that spent billions of dollars in defense every year. Look at America's defense spending. Just over the last 10 years, Ralph, it's, it's holistically ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Just look at it. And we spend so much money in defense, building the latest um, fighter bomb, um, fighter jets, building the latest bombs, the latest guns. At some point, we are going to have to cause wars to justify all of that spending. Yeah, I mean that is just—it's only—it's uh, only common sense to do it. You can't have a stockpile of. Uh, so much, so much uh, ammunition, and just have it sit there. You know, it's like having a, it's like having a bunker or whatever filled with uh, canned food. Eventually, you're gonna have to start using some of it before it gets spoiled. So, see, except, like, put it this way: you don't buy a month's supply of meat, which is a thirty-day supply. And say, well, I ain't going to make this to 90 days out. You're going to try to cook that food up as fast as you can because you don't want it going bad on you. And that's it's the same thing. They don't make those toys, those new toys for nothing. They're trying to use them. They want to see how they work, if they're effective, and if they have to go back to the old drawing board. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's how it is. Well, thank you for the conversation, Buck. 